Welcome to another episode of Keep the Dream Flowing, a Woodstock podcast, a Woodstock 1969 podcast. And I'm here. I'm Jack Lokensky. I'm here with Scott Parker and Aaron Shearer. Here. Hello. And a few episodes ago, we interviewed Steve Katz and he alluded to that he was in a Blood, Sweat and Tears movie directed by John Scheinfeld. And a couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity to see the movie. And here we are with John Scheinfeld. Hey. 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 Thank you. Thank you. So nice of you to have me. Love talking. One of the great documentarians of our time. And if you don't believe me, look him up on IMDb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he he's done documentaries on Char- on John Coltrane, on John Lennon, on Dick Cabot, oh, Coltrane, yeah, Brian Wilson, Brian Wilson, yep. Harry Nielsen, etc. I mean, et really, we're kind of honored to have you here, John, because you know we kind of don't deserve you, really, <laughs> way like we really don't, you know. Aren't you nice? Well, you know, I'm so proud of what the hell happened to Blood, Sweat and Tears. Love talking about it. And we had so many interesting discoveries around Woodstock. So uh, a lot of the interviews I've been doing have been about the overall film. And to be able to talk a little bit more in depth about uh, the Woodstock experience, uh, it was great fun. So uh, I I thank you for having me. We thank thank you for being here. And we hope our listeners will uh, go see your movie. And that's why you're here. I hope so, too. Maybe we get that out of the way. We are in theaters across the country as uh, we are doing this podcast. Um, your listeners can go to uh, bstdoc.com. And in the upper right-hand corner, click on Watch, and it'll show you every theater across the country that's showing the film. Uh, I was just, uh, you know, we were in New York where Jack, you and I met. And uh, uh, Scott, we didn't meet there, did we? We did not. Yeah. No, I wanted to be there, but I couldn't get to New York at that time. And Aaron, you weren't there. I no. Yeah. But I have seen the movie. Oh, good. I'm I so watched the screener. I have to. <laughs> I watched yeah. the screener last Friday. So. Ah, great. Well, yeah. we, um, we opened in L.A. Uh, the week after New York, and then we've been all over the country and I was up in the Bay Area last uh, uh, two weekends ago, this past weekend down in Palm Springs, and I, I get a few weeks off, and then we're going to do a mini tour, going to go to do screenings and Q&As in Denver, Chicago, and uh, Milwaukee. So it'll be nice. Well, yeah, definitely go to bstdoc.com. There are special screenings available with you and there are former members of Blood, Sweat, and Tears who also show up. I know I um, didn't make it out to Lancaster to see our friend Steve Katz. Yep. But I know, but I know Jim Fielder's doing them. Right. Um, Bobby Columbia's uh, doing Bobby them. Bobby yep. Columbia's doing them. Um, and you never know who's going to show up. Exactly. So. I mean, that's the thing that I would tell our listeners. If you don't see this documentary, you're a fool because, you know, (laughs) (laughs) well, I I wouldn't I wouldn't say that, but I think it would appeal to anybody. I'd probably say that, Jack. I'd probably say that. I I think (laughs) that anybody who listens to this podcast would have an interest in this documentary and really should see it. Yes. Well, absolutely. You know, as we kind of we're working on this thing. It became very clear to us, me and my team, that um, 
you didn't really have to know blood, sweat and tears. You didn't really have to know the hits uh, to be drawn into what is a story of political intrigue um, involving uh, the State Department, the White House, Kissinger, Nixon, uh, Abby Hoffman on the left, um, <laughs> U.S. media, and then governments of, of Yugoslavia, Romania and Poland. And, and it's all such a fascinating story that I, I couldn't resist doing it. And the more we rolled up our sleeves and worked on it, uh, the more fun we had and the more things we learned. So yeah, it was funny because there were uh, some of the guys in, in BST that we talked to kind of alluded to that, right, Jack? Yeah. But we didn't know what the, we didn't really know what the deal was. Hmm. And now we do. <laughs> I mean, well, they didn't what, what keep I, it from us, say, but yeah. What I will I'm say. I'm sorry, John. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Scott. What um, we don't want to give away too much of it for your listeners, but I think what suffice it to say that in 1970, Blood, Sweat, and Tears was one of the biggest bands in the world, mm -hmm. and then suddenly <laughs> they weren't. And we tell the story of what happened. And it involves all those things we just talked about and much more. And it's a really compelling story. And uh, I think anybody who's sort of fascinated um, uh, by the band, that's great. But you'll also be fascinated by the story. It's, it's a spy story. It's foreign intrigue. It's a music documentary. It's a floor wax. It's everything you want. <laughs> yeah. I mean, would you like a peek behind the Iron Curtain, you know, at that time? I mean, there you are, you know. It's amazing what you were able to cobble together from mm. this. So uh, one of the things that I want to ask you is where, you know, because I, I, I kind of know, but where did the footage come from? Well, we had uh, a number of different sources uh, for footage for this uh, documentary. Mm -hmm. uh, for your listeners, uh, Blood, Sweat and Tears went, uh, was the first American rock band to perform behind the Iron Curtain. They went on a three week tour in the middle of 1970. So they went on a three week tour uh, of, of what was then Yugoslavia, Romania and Poland. They took a documentary film crew uh, with them with the idea that they were gonna shoot this tour and then make a concert film uh, out of it that would be in theaters because Blood, Sweat and Tears was so big then that they would have warranted a big screen documentary. Mm -hmm. they, also they also recorded all of their concerts and they came back here to edit that documentary and that's when the trouble started. Uh, but um, ultimately what we found was a pristine print of a one hour edit of this footage uh, that had been done for um, uh, television syndication, but it never aired. And uh, it was buried in this vault in Hollywood since 1971. Uh, had we not found that, we would not be here today talking about our film, but we did. Sure. Mm -hmm. So that was really the foundation of our film was, was being able to see blood, sweat and tears on the ground in those communist countries both performing and uh, what they encountered in those communist countries. But we also had a lot of other footage that we had to find. Uh, most pertinent for what we're talking about today is we got a chance to look at the existing footage of Blood, Sweat and Tears at Woodstock. 
uh, and we'll get into the story of that, but a lot of people thought A, it had disappeared or they never got uh, captured on film. Mm -hmm. uh, but what we discovered was uh, the first five songs of their set had been shot before uh, the cameras were ordered to be turned off. Mm. Um, not all cameras were working and uh, we had to piece together our own version of, of the song that we see in the film. But in our film, it's the first time anybody has seen this footage. Yeah. So um, I, uh, you know, I grew up um, with the idea that Blood, Sweat and Tears was kind of what I might call an AM radio band. I'm a little bit younger than some of the co-hosts, um, <laughs> you know, and not to diss the Carpenters, but kind of like putting them in the same category as the Carpenters. And it was only maybe about 10 or 15 years ago that I really learned of like their countercultural origins and that they performed at Woodstock and stuff like that. And I think this movie actually does a pretty good job of explaining why I would have grown up with that impression. No question about it. it, it it's sort of inherent in the title of our film. What the hell happened to Blood, Sweat and Tears? What yep. the hell happened is that people like you uh, were not um, exposed to just how great this band was, not only as players, but how successful they were. And not just AM, everybody loved this mm -hmm. band. They were a yes. darling of the underground yeah. up until this moment. Uh, uh, all the underground, Cream, uh, Rolling Stone, a lot of the magazines at the time, everybody loved this band. And that's why it's, it's sort of a, a tragedy, if you will. In some ways, guys, this um, uh, film has uh, Shakespearean overtones. Uh, you have nine innocent guys who are swept up into this intrigue and are forced to do something that they believe will save their band. Mm -hmm. But in saving their band, they kill it. And that to me is a very, very dramatic story. Yeah, because the uh, revolt from the counterculture is like, uh, is basically the crux of the biscuit here. You know, that it, they kind of turned on them, yes. essentially. And from what I've, I've talked uh, with various people who were at Woodstock or, you know, who knew about BST. That's kind of the thing, you know, like when you talk to them, you know, it was just like, well, no, they worked with the government and therefore they weren't cool anymore. It is basically what it comes down to. That's right. But having been one of the first acts booked for Woodstock, you yeah. couldn't be much cooler than that. And they were very <laughs> cool that night. Uh, oh yeah, formed, uh, and and uh, so that's why um, uh, Aaron, I would say that uh, um, you're a good example. I think of the fallout of what happened in the summer of 1970. That it hasn't really come down to uh, every uh, uh, subsequent generation of listeners of, of just how significant and important uh, was this band. Yeah, I mean, I always kind of grew up with this impression that they were kind of like this Vegas, you know. Vegasy pop, whatever, uh, along with I think the Ides of March might be that sounded a lot like Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Sure. And uh, like I said, you know, it was maybe like I was like, must have been like Googling something about Al Cooper, maybe, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. And that's when I learned about, you know, their origins and the, the counterculture and that, you know, maybe they weren't always quite that, you know, cheesy. It, it it's kind of the equivalent ah. 
of Green Day after releasing American Idiot working for the Bush administration. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yep. Yeah, it's perfect. Well, you know, it's interesting. The uh, That first album, uh, Child is Father to the Man, uh, yep. that, that uh, Al, Al Cooper was the band leader then, uh, that was very hip and very un- underground and uh, all the critics loved it. Uh, but the point that we make in the film is that it didn't sell very many copies at the time. It did not. Once Blood, Sweat and Tears reconstituted itself with a new singer and a few new members of the band, then they really exploded on the scene and people actually went back to that first album and bought it. And, uh, you know, it's interesting as I've been doing press for the film, I find that there are uh, uh, two camps of, of Blood, Sweat and Tears fans. One loves that first album with Al Cooper um, and, 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 and Pooh Pooh's uh, the David Clayton Thomas hit years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then there are those that, that love the David Clayton Thomas years and, and feel that Al Cooper couldn't sing. And that was, but there are people <laughs> like me that love both because it, it really yeah. was the experiment in sound, uh, adding horns to rock and roll in a way they had not been added before. And it was just this unique sound. Uh, Clive Davis says it in our film that this was an innovative sound. Blood, Sweat and Tears were leading the way, not following. So Ides of March, Chicago, Tower of Power, um, a lot of those uh, Chase, a lot of those kinds of bands really were following in the footsteps of, uh, of Blood, Sweat and Tears. And then there's some, uh, you know, then, then there are the years after all of this happened where David left the band and they had Jerry Fisher as a singer and I, those albums, a lot of people mm. kind of started to drift away. And David finally came back. But, you know, guys, it's really interesting in pop culture, and I'm sure you see this in, in, in your other programs. Uh, bands in, have a moment. And in that moment, everything's going great. The reviews are great. They're in demand for concerts. People love the concerts. The buzz is great. Everybody wants a piece of them. And they're just on the ascent. Yeah. But any one little thing can throw things off and suddenly the moment evaporates. And that's what we saw with Blood, Sweat and Tears. When they came back from this tour, everything that happened to them, yes, they continued to record. Yes, they continued uh, to perform live in concert, but it wasn't the same. The moment had gone. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, um, you know, but I never really understood because do you think that a band like Chicago usurped the ground that BST were walking on? You know, Scott, that's an interesting question. Um, I think one could make an argument that Chicago was, was influenced by blood, sweat and tears or the fact, absolutely. Or the fact that blood, sweat and tears had the success it did early on paved the way for Chicago. I thought that Chicago, now, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, I think Steve Katz in his book said that he took his initial inspiration from the Buckinghams, and didn't the Buckinghams in Chicago have James, William, I can't pronounce, Gersio. Gersio, yeah. And Jim Peterick was also from Chicago, who's behind the Ides of March and Survivor and everything else. Yeah, yeah. So the Buckinghams had some hits in 66 and 67. Um, and then they sort of trailed off. And Garcia went, went to New York and uh-huh. ended up uh, producing Blood, Sweat and Tears. Yeah. And, 
And uh, then he found Chicago, another horn band, <laughs> and was working with them. I think you could you could make the case though that Chicago had a different style. They uh, um, Plus One Tears incorporated more jazz, more jazz. Blues, more <laughs> blues, even a little bit of classical music. Where Chicago yep. was pretty straight ahead uh, pop music, and I love Chicago. So oh, I do too. Yeah. But I, so I think yes, they had horns in common, but they also had some other differences. I, I think the thing is, like, you're not going to hear Chicago do God Bless the Child. No. But, you know, the way that BST did it is just, it's perfect, you know? And, and as we talked about with Fred Lipsius, nobody could sing the song except for David Clayton Thomas. David except was a unique, unique singer. Yeah. Chicago had several singers who were just fine. Um, but David just has a unique way with a song. Also, I would say Fred, Fred uh, Lipsius and uh, Dick Halligan were extremely talented arrangers. So yes. they could take those songs yes. and really make them their own or make them really blood, sweat and tears. Uh, and that's what also contributed to this very unique sound. Now, I have that's to say, sitting here listening to you talk, Aaron, are you from Chicago? No, I uh, actually live um, in upstate New York. I live in the Finger Lakes region between mm -hmm. Rochester and Syracuse. Because you have uh, you have a <laughs> that flat A that people have from Chicago. Yeah. So anyway, I've been told that many many times. <laughs> she gets a lot of that on this show, John. Does she? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There you go. But I mean, if you, you listen to the uh, just the beginning of uh, Spinning Wheel, the horn chart at the beginning of it before the vocal comes in. I mean, you know, where does that come from? You know, you could never get away with that now. And it's just genius, you know? It really is. And um, that that second album, which is the first, the, the self-titled album, the one with David Clayton Thomas singing for the first time, unbelievably successful record, but also an unbelievably uh, uh, great record. There's not yeah. one not one bad song on that whole album. You can listen no, to it over and over and over again, and, and you'll never like take the, uh, take a break from it. Um, it's, it's amazing. How much did uh, Clive Davis have to do with the second album? Because I know because he was featured heavily in the documentary. Yeah, and it kind of has well, his fingerprints on it. Yeah, well, uh, Clive. Not only is he sort of a spokesman for for the the music industry, so when he says something, it matters and it means something. Um, but he was the one who, who heard Blood, Sweat and Tears at the Cafe Agogo in, in Greenwich Village in 1967 and signed Blood, Sweat and Tears to Columbia Records. So he was the first one to really show faith in that band. And he encouraged them and supported them, uh, not only uh, during the making of the first album, but in that transition period where everything could have fallen apart and, and the label could have said, okay, we're not gonna do any more with you, but he really believed in this sound. And he saw them through that transition period and then saw them through that first album uh, so, uh, with David Clayton Thomas and, and all the singles that came out of it. So it was a very successful band for him as head of Columbia Records. Um, and so he, he was, as I say, a great supporter of the band. Uh, I don't believe he was in there day to day doing any of the work in the making of the record. But I, uh, Steve and, and Bobby tell stories that they would go up to his office and play him stuff and he just loved it. And 
so I think that that was his role was to be the godfather, if you will, and to support them as as they uh, uh, did what they did. Because in listening to the self-titled album, some of the work that he did, that Clive Davis did subsequently, like putting together uh, Supernatural for Santana, it's kind of the same blueprint. You bet. So I figured that he might have had some influence in the album. But uh, I he, think he no, could have I, also learned from it, too. Yeah, I think, Jack, his gift was to be able to hear the uniqueness of a sound and give them the opportunity to succeed. Uh, and he did it with Blood, Sweat and Tears. He did it with Janis Joplin. He did it with Santana uh, in that very first album in 69. Uh, there's a whole long list of the bands that he signed uh, to uh, Columbia Records. And I think that speaks to his ability to, to recognize and nurture talent. And not just Columbia, he, he, he's the... He's behind Whitney Houston. He's yeah. just a, uh, he's had a long, legendary career. He really and, has. And we and were excited to, to get him for, for the film. And um, he deserves all the accolades he's received in his life. Yeah, you bet. I was going to say that um, basically you're talking about in that era, you're really talking about two people. One is Amon Erdogan and the other is Clive Davis. Yes. And between the two of them, they, signed and fostered most of the popular music from that era that kind of we still that remember. Can, yeah, it's kind of amazing. You can track it back to two guys. Uh, Ahmed sort of airing on the side of rock. Mm -hmm. and, uh, sorry, on, on the side of R&B. And yep. uh, Clive a little bit airing on the side of rock, but two mm -hmm. very uh, uh, um, skilled uh, uh, nurturers of talent. Yeah, that's your next movie, John. You have to do an Amit movie. <laughs> the Amit Erdogan story. There you go. <laughs> anyway, go well, ahead. Somebody it, take it because I'm monopolizing. Well, let's go. Let's go back to the movie. You, you also there's a cameo from everybody's favorite No Good Nicks in there, <laughs> and that would be Boris and Natasha. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, you know something. Um, I think one of the things that characterizes the documentary films that I make is I have a sense of humor. Even if the subject is somewhat intense and, and serious and thoughtful, uh, I always try to find some ways to entertain the audience with something unexpected. So yes, in this one, uh, we have some appearances by characters from Rocky and Bullwinkle. Uh, we have uh, an appearance by James Caan from The Godfather, Peter yes. Sellers from, from the Pink Panther movies. What the hell do they have to do with blood, sweat and tears? You may ask, well, you will have to come to the film and see. But it was all in service to having a sense of humor and and uh, making people laugh along the way of what is essentially a very serious story. I actually when when Boris and Natasha came up, I almost fell out of my chair. <laughs> and I'm, a, I'm a huge Rocky and Bullwinkle fan. Yeah. Etc. So, yeah, uh, bravo, bravo. <laughs> we have to educate Aaron on this. What, Rocky and Bullwinkle? Yeah, you know, you have to watch the entire series from. <laughs> oh, I've back. seen the whole series. My father loves Rocky and Bullwinkle. <laughs> you don't well, tell I us these things. <laughs> Aside from the fact uh, that, that it's very funny. Uh, Rocky and Bill Bullwinkle emerged in a, during the Cold War. 
And yep. a mm-hmm. lot of the gags they did and some of the storylines, particularly with Boris and Natasha and Rocky and Bullwinkle, are, are them getting caught up in Cold War stuff. So when we were looking for particular clips, we were able to find things that specifically spoke to what Blood, Sweat and Tears was encountering when they went behind the Iron Curtain. They were just so perfect. My editor, Pete Lynch and I are sitting there going, whoa, this is like fantastic. Just <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's, it's very apt and it's perfect spot on in the movie. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And, and you know, it's really interesting. We, we, we sit in our dark editing rooms working for months at a time and you hope you're doing good work, but you don't really know. So you get in a room full of strangers like uh, we were with you, Jack, uh, that Saturday night at the Quad in, in Greenwich Village. And, and the audience laughs in all the right places. And you can just feel the rhythm in the room uh, that they're, they're totally with us and engaged. And uh, that's a great feeling. And, and again, we're talking to John Scheinfeld, who produced, wrote, directed What the Hell Happened to Blood, Sweat and Tears. You can look at it. You can find out where it's playing at bstdoc.com. And we urge people to watch it. Let's continue. (laughs) um, So the original documentary that had been shot was shot and directed by a guy by the name of Don Camburn, who I had known previously from having edited Easy Rider, which I think came out maybe about maybe not even a year before they went and shot this documentary. So I thought having him and the fact that he's still alive, uh, you know, did he pass? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you you the story, Aaron. Um, um, We saw Don's name on this. And so we, we uh, tried to track him down and it took us quite a bit of time. Uh, We finally found that he was living in an assisted living facility in Burbank out here in California. He was 91 years old. And uh, so we, we finally got him on the phone and uh, sharp as a whip and great recall for stories. And the frustrating thing was uh, it was during COVID and in those kinds of facilities, they wouldn't let us in and they wouldn't let him out. So um, I had to really be patient and hope that we could get him out to do an interview um, Uh, in time for the film. And finally we did, there was like a two or three week period where they were allowing people out and we had him come over to the complex where we had our offices and we shot the interview. Um, This was his first opportunity to direct. He'd been pretty much an editor for the uh, six or seven years before, mostly doing TV shows. And then he gets five easy pieces and he would go on to do a number of movies with Jack Nicholson. He did Romancing the Stone. He did one of the Ghostbuster movies. So if you look him up, um, you will see he is an editor of note. But this was somebody was giving him a chance to actually direct something. And so there was a five-person camera crew under Don's direction. They shot 65 hours of material. And uh, and um, the, the interesting thing about Don is he really, the other, sorry, The other thing that I do uh, in my documentaries is try to capture the emotion of people. So it isn't just the facts, it's Mm -hmm. how did you feel about it? And with Don, even though it's 50 some years later, you still feel his pain and the sadness that he experienced when this documentary never came out. He was so proud of what this could have been and so disappointed that it was never released. And lost. 
and lost. Exactly right. These 65 hours totally vanished. Uh, most of the original tapes of their concerts vanished. Gone forever? This is my nightmare. Actually, I had two nightmares. Okay. One is uh, that it all ended up in the same warehouse at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. With <laughs> oh, God. Is there, never to be found again. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the other, the other uh, nightmare is that I'm going to do a, a Q&A like Jack saw uh, at the quad. And, and somebody's going to come up and say, uh, why didn't you call me? I have it all in my garage. <laughs> <laughs> but the truth is, I, I do feel it's gone. Uh, and not nefariously, not w- for any sinister reason. I think uh, we, we, we suggest in the film what happened. Uh, yeah. and, and I think it just, it, it, it was taken back by the government. It, it probably sat in storage for 10, 12 years. And somebody said, you know, no one's asked for this stuff. Who wants Romania mm-hmm. in 1970? And Blood, Sweat and Tears isn't famous anymore. Let's, you know, we need the storage space. Let's get rid yeah. of it. I, I, personally, that's what I think happened. But uh, there's some other possibilities that we talk about in the film, but that's what I think happened. Well, without it's, spoiling too much, the story you tell about how they got all that film out of the, you know, the communist countries um, by having to put them in the embassy was a really interesting story. Well, you know, Jack was referring before to spy stuff, and that's a great uh, mm-hmm. element uh, of that here, uh, that um, the Romanian government was fearful of what Don and his crew had captured on film uh, that uh, for, uh, those two concerts in Bucharest. Yes. And the government determined that they were going to confiscate and destroy that film. You know, there are people around today that like to praise Putin and like to talk about, you know, mm-hmm. how great Putin is and all of that. What mm-hmm. Blood, Sweat, Tears discovered during this tour is that um, it is not a good thing to be living under the heel of a dictator like that. Mm-hmm. These are repressive societies where you can be arrested for any small thing, whether it actually happened or not. Um, you would be afraid to speak your mind. You were under surveillance. People reported on you. People in your family would report on you if you said or did things that were suspicious. This is not the kind of culture that we want to be part of. And the band really understood that. And so here they are. The, the government had, had decide, of Romania had decided they were going to confiscate this film. Don found out about it. And through a, a, a really espionage-laden scheme, they were able to smuggle the film out of Romania and get it back mm-hmm. to the United States. But what I will say, and I thank you for bringing up Don, if Don weren't in this film, it wouldn't be near as good. He elevated the whole thing, not only with the storytelling mm-hmm. and with the incidents that he was part of or witnessed that the other band members didn't, um, but also because of the emotional uh, component of how he felt about what happened back then. That name, I mean, aside from the members of the band, that name really stood out for me. And I was like, oh, wow. You know, like, I mean, he's a definitely a legend, as you said. He is. And what was uh, uh, just so sad for us is uh, once we finished uh, a, a fine cut of the film, I wanted Don to come in and see it. Um, and, and give us any notes that he might have, making sure that we were mm-hmm. 100% accurate and all of those things. And he was experiencing a lot of health issues by that time. 
Um, he was in and out of rehab. He had broken bones and uh, that he was just not able to come and do it. And then he passed away, passed away about uh, in January of 2023. And he never did see it, uh, which is just a shame because I think to see how important he was in our film would have been a wonderful thing for, for someone at his age. Uh, uh, the small good news is his 87 uh, or 88 year old girlfriend uh, came to see it at one of the screenings here in Los Angeles and was just blown away by, by him and by the story. See, that's, you know, the amazing thing to me is that you were able to find the footage that you were looking for because we know, you know, because we cover this in the, in the Woodstock show here, how difficult it is to find footage. It's, you know, in a lot of cases, it's, it's absolutely impossible. It sometimes can be impossible. Sometimes it's just, you, you have to take a super deep dive. Um, my team and I are just uh, really experienced at this and we are also relentless. I'll give you a quick example. It's not a blood, sweat and tears example, but I made a film um, seven years ago about John Coltrane called Chasing Train. And we were in New Jersey at the home of Chuck Stewart, who's a wonderful photographer and had shot some uh, classic photos of Coltrane, but also of many, many other jazz legends. Uh, but I didn't want to use just the famous five or six shots of Coltrane. I wanted to see his negatives and his contact sheets. And, and so we're going through a pile of stuff. My uh, producer, Dave Harding, and I were there. And I must have said something like, oh, shit. And Dave says, what is it? And I said, look at this photo. And he says, what? It's like Coltrane and some guy in the studio. So what? I said, look at what the guy is holding in his hand. And the guy is holding a Super 8 movie camera. So what am I thinking? <laughs> he shot that session uh, with Coltrane. So Chuck happily remembered uh, who the guy was. It was a, a world-class uh, bass player named Art Davis. Yes. So yep. we tracked down, well, Art Davis, unfortunately, had passed away in 2008, many years before we came. But we tracked down his son, who was an insurance broker in Van Nuys, California, about uh, 10 minutes from my house. And he said, oh, yeah, I got all the home movies in a box in the garage. <laughs> you know, he hadn't looked at him since his dad passed. And so we went uh, and we looked at all of the home movies for weeks uh, at a time. And finally, most of them were like mom and dad, grandma and grandpa and the kids in the backyard kind of home movies. But then we found a seven minute uh, color uh, roll of film of Coltrane in the studio. And that is wow. no one had ever seen that before. So we pride ourselves on being able to find stuff. So whether it was this one hour cut, which had been, called down from the 65 hours, uh, whether it was a few of the videotapes, uh, the audio tapes that we found, um, or whether it was the Woodstock footage. We pride ourselves on knowing the right way to go about finding stuff. And I think people who come to see what the hell happened to Blood, Sweat and Tears are gonna see a lot of footage that uh, they haven't and most people hadn't seen before. Well, I think that what you need to do now, John, is you need to work with the Woodstock footage. Because somebody needs to work with that in the worst way. You, you've <laughs> given him six film projects. <laughs> that, that's fine. You know, John's got time. <laughs> exactly. 
you know, that footage is owned by Warner Brothers and they kind of yep. do what they will with it. We, we were able to find um, the footage of More and More, which I really wanted to use yes. because that's a song that hadn't been captured anywhere else, any TV show, any concert performance by Blood, Sweat and Tears. Uh, we were able to find that. And, um, and, and uh, there were several cameras that shot it. Not all the cameras were on, but we were able to put together our own little uh, edit of it. And, and, and uh, happily, uh, Warner Brothers was happy with that and they allowed us to, to use the film. So we were quite, quite happy with that. You know, who I, mean, I think they never signed a release right before they went on stage. So that was, when uh, yeah, that was the issue with a number of the bands. Yeah, uh, that they did not sign a release or did not agree to sign a release because they were not being offered any money or were not being offered enough money. Yeah, and the key the key person, as you you probably all know from your your previous podcasts, was Albert Grossman. Yes, yeah. for Bob Dylan and the band and Joan Baez and Peter, Paul and Mary and everybody uh, in the managerial world looked up to him. Yep. And so when he said, no, you're not going to have my artists in this film. <laughs> uh, the manager at the time of Blood, Sweat and Tears loved Albert and well, hey, <laughs> Albert's not going to allow his band. I'm not going to allow my band. So there were a number of them, probably a good eight or nine that uh, never signed releases. And so that's why they've never appeared in the film and never appeared on, on the official soundtrack uh, releases. Well, they, they've since released two more sound, two more soundtracks. So there's Woodstock one, two, three, and four now. And they've released a 40th anniversary. The last big one they did was a 40th anniversary cut with bonus features. And a lot of the bands that were not featured previously, like the Grateful Dead and others, their footage has been restored to other cuts, but not BST, not, not BST, B not BST. Not before now. But uh, <laughs> no, I mean, Lou Soloff released one of the clips on YouTube before he died. Um, and I saw, you know, some of the footage that way, but I haven't yeah. seen a complete footage. And for me, I was four when Woodstock happened seeing the footage of blood, sweat and tears play live was one of the true highlights of the movie. Ah, it really was. And, you know, there was a new HD transfer made from the original negative. So it looks as good as it's Ooh. ever going to look. Yeah. And um, we matched it with sound. Uh, Sony music put out uh, for the 50th anniversary, put out the entire blood, sweat and tears uh, set from Woodstock. So we were able right. to sync up the film with, with the actual uh, uh, sound, which was great. Um, and I do know there have been other audio releases of Woodstock material, and I, I don't know if Blood, Sweat and Tears was in there or not, but um, it, it's just one of those things that so many great bands, at least back in the day, were, uh, were not present in the film and on the soundtrack. And so as David Clayton Thomas says uh, in our film, his daughter said, I saw the film. You weren't in it. So, you know, you weren't there. No, we weren't there. We were there, honestly. Sweet to me, each passing day. 
How important was David Clayton Thomas to Blood, Sweat, and Tears in that era? He was the voice of Blood, Sweat, and Tears, not just literally, uh, figuratively and literally, but um, he contributed to that sound in a way that is so unique and so special. He had the ability to sing ballads, sing jazz, sing R&B, sing rock and roll, and, and really bring these songs to uh, a level that other singers could not have. So I would say David was absolutely essential to the sound and the success of that band. And ultimately, that's what helped cause some of the problems that the band had, is that they, there was a chance mm-hmm. they were gonna lose David and they didn't uh, want to do that. That's it, because he had been, well, you know, the, I mean, I don't know how far we want to get into the story because people need to uh, to watch the movie, but he'd been busted, of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, do we want to go there, John? Or should we just let people? <laughs> uh, I think what we will say is um, David had immigration issues. Yes. And he was going to get deported. And if he were to be deported, there would be one of the hottest bands going without their lead singer to tour and, 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 and record with. And so the band had to do something to make sure that that didn't happen. And that's the story we tell in the film. But yes, to, to kind of come back to what you're saying, Scott, is that if, 
if they had lost him, it would have been uh, an immeasurable loss. Yeah, which is why they went on this quest to help save David Clayton Thomas. Mm -hmm. And in the end, it didn't work out the way they hoped. Exactly right. And again, that's at the heart of our story. Uh, but you do see in the footage that we have, you see in the Woodstock footage, a bit of the TV footage, and in the performance footage that we did find that was part of that one hour, um, just how good this band was and just how good David is, was as a singer. Now, I will tell you the other detective story is we knew that they had recorded all their concerts on this Iron Curtain tour, but I, I had feared that those tapes were going to uh, go the way of the 65 hours uh, in, in the Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, warehouse or somewhere. And um, I have a, a researcher, Kathleen Ermitage, who is fantastic. And she is very sweet, uh, but extremely persistent. And she tracked down the uh, family of the associate producer of that documentary film crew. He had unfortunately passed away in 2018 two years before I even knew about this story, which, which frustrated me because I'm sure he could have told us where everything went. Uh, but he had a storage unit here in Los Angeles. And when he passed away, his family donated the contents of the storage unit to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences here in Los Angeles. And the stuff was just sitting in their archive for three years. Nobody looked at it. Nobody had done an inventory. And uh, Kathleen finally persuaded this uh, wonderful archivist, Warren, to go down into the archive and, and prowl through the stuff. And lo and behold, there were five of these um, eight-track audio tapes. Not the eight-track that people used to have in their cars, but a <laughs> yeah. portable studio eight-track. Eight multi-track uh, tapes. Multi-track tapes. Yep. Uh, it was number three, number four, number seven, number nine, and number 18. So we knew at one point there were eight, uh, 18 of these. Why he only saved these five, we don't know. What happened to the others, we don't know. But thank goodness that we found these because we were uh, able to go into the studio, Capitol Records here in, in Los Angeles, and Bobby Columbia and Alan Sides, a wonderful engineer, uh, took those multi-tracks and mixed them and they sound as if they were recorded today. And when you're in the theater, it's like blasting out of these speakers and in your face, and you really get a sense of, of a band at the height of their uh, performing powers. I, I had the screener on and I have surround sound in my little office there. And uh, I'm not sure that I'm getting the full experience. Obviously I'm not, but you know, the mix that I was getting, it's just, you know, it, it just hits you. It hits you really hard. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think people need to hear. Yeah, Seeing it in a theater is, is just an, an amazing experience. I had in some ways a crummy seat in some ways, a great seat. I was sitting in the front row. Yeah. Um, which is, but I, you know, the sound, the sound in a movie theater is just awesome. Yeah. And in that theater, uh, in the quad, it was just terrific. But, um, you know, thank goodness, because uh, the performances of Blood, Sweat and Tears Behind the Iron Curtain that were in that one hour of film that we did feature, um, the sound was in the film. But but um, for those of you who, who don't know, uh, when you're doing 16 millimeter film, 
the sound, or 35 for that matter, but the sound is on an optical strip on the side of the film. Mm -hmm. It's compressed. And in those days, it was in mono. And yeah. so we would have made do with that if we had to. But um, thankfully, uh, we found these tapes and were able to create these mixes that just really are terrific and really elevate the entire film. So um, I'd like to go in, maybe I'm getting on a tangent, going off on a tangent a little bit, but I'd like to ask you about your the distributor of this uh, film, Abrama Rama. Um, so in a, another lifetime, before I was volunteering for NPR, or even before my you know, side hustle of journalism, I used to blog about independent film. I would go to like South by Southwest. And actually, uh, this is my uh, when I this is from when I volunteered ah. at the Woodstock Film Festival before yeah. the pandemic. And I used to go to like the name of the blog I worked for was called the Film Panel Note Taker. And one year at South by Southwest back in 2011, Richard Abramowitz was on a panel on self-distribution um, that was led by Scott McCauley, who uh, I'm, I want to say he's still editing Filmmaker, but anyway, he was on this panel. Richard Abramowitz was on this panel. And uh, I asked him a question about four-walling. And for those of you who don't know what four-walling is, it's when you um, you know, lease out a theater for a particular period of time to show the movie. And uh, he did a really good job of answering that question. So I think um, this documentary really landed in a, a nice spot. And so I just wanted to give a shout out to Richard Abramowitz there. <laughs> um, this is the third film that I've done with Abramorama. Uh, Chasing Train was done with them. And yep. uh, I, I made a film about Herb Alpert that was done with them which was going to be in theaters uh, and then COVID hit and it kind of killed us. And so it never made it, but um, uh, they are a terrific distributor of independent films. Uh, many, many music films. Richard is a big music fan, loves music and, and knows how best to market it, but they are wonderful people, straight shooters, honest, and uh, as when you're a filmmaker, those those qualities are very important. Um, but also, it's a it's a new model for for distributing. Um, these days, you know, we don't quite know where the yeah. theatrical business is going to go. It's changed certainly since the pandemic, and is continuing to change. And uh, I'm not even sure people will be going to theaters five, six, ten years yeah. from now. Uh, I'm no expert, but uh, yeah, that's a thing. Yeah, I feared sure. that that may be the case. So when we were uh, trying to determine the best way to get this film out there, uh, Richard's model was really the best for us, and they've just mm -hmm. done a terrific job. The uh, John, I wanted to uh, just point this out before I forget. When I was trying to introduce my daughter to um, to John Coltrane, and I. Started off the deep end. I started with Live at the Village Vanguard again with uh, Rashid Ali. That was a terrible idea. I I <laughs> totally know it was. But Chasing Train, you know, she got it <laughs> right away. So interesting. Bravo. A very different film. He was very spiritual. The film is very uh, spiritual and um, and many different facets to him as an individual. And so I'm so glad. That's great. It's great to hear that. Absolutely getting, brilliant. Getting back to your movie, 
Why did Bobby Columbi call you? Uh, actually, Bobby had come to see a friends and family influencer screening we had done of uh, Chasing Train. And he came up to me afterward just to tell me how much he enjoy- introduced himself. And I, oh, love Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And uh, he said, so uh, let's go to dinner. I'd like to get acquainted. So we went to dinner and that was that. And then I didn't hear from him again until about two months before COVID. And he called me out of the blue and said, I have a story I want to tell you. Let's go to dinner again. So um, we went out and, and I'm telling him again how much I love the band. And then I literally said to him, what the hell happened to Blood, Sweat and Tears? Because here you were the biggest thing and then you're not. And he said, that's the story I'm going to tell you. So I think it was a combination of things. I think the story had now come back into the forefront of, of his consciousness. And he was thinking, you know, maybe we finally ought to do something with this. And, and then I think he remembered a film that he loved and thought, well, maybe John's the guy to do this. And at the screening, uh, you had uh, Tim Natali there as well, who's the historian. And they spoke about, how prescient that film is and how history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it rhymes. And a lot of the things that are going on now seem to echo back to what was going on at that particular time. Thank you for noticing. Yeah. We were very struck by the parallels between uh, 2023 and, and 1970. Some of the specifics were different. But the country was uh, polarized then as we are now, left and right, red and blue. The world was polarized east and west, much like we are now with Russia being on, on, on the wrong side of it. Um, when, we, when Tim Naftali, who's a brilliant Cold War historian, was, was talking about what was going on in that part of the world, one of the, one of the uh, incidents he mentioned was the Russian invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968 when Czechoslovakia was trying to become more of a democracy and the Russians couldn't and, and wouldn't uh, handle that. So they rolled in with the tanks and we're sitting there saying, boy, that reminds us a lot of Russian tanks rolling into the Ukraine in, in, uh, in these times. And so we're struck by all of that. And then also struck by uh, they were uh, an early victim of cancel culture before we knew what that was, or before <laughs> it actually had a name. Yep. And, uh, and so many, many parallels. So I think, again, what I was, the point I was uh, trying to make before is that you don't really have to know the music of Blood, Sweat and Tears to be able to appreciate the story because there are so many things in it that are resonant for today's audiences. It's a, wonder, it's a wonderful film and it just is, it, it's, there's something for everybody in it. I literally said about three quarters of the way through the movie, the more things change, the more they stay the same, because uh, it's exactly that. <laughs> very much so. And, and actually, David Clayton Thomas also makes a point. We, we show a, a, a Republican congressman got up on the floor of the uh, um, House to blast blood, sweat and tears and David Clayton Thomas specifically. Mm-hmm. And he says, don't we hear that same partisan, you know, BS today? And he's <laughs> right. We just do. Amen to that. <laughs> and we, we, we know people who hated Nixon, but love Trump. And it's, I just mm-hmm. shake my head. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, yeah, we're, we're in safe territory here. I think we all agree about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
Again, I might be going off a little bit on a tangent here, but I did like, I wanted to talk about another documentary you did that I really loved called Who is Harry Nilsson and Why is Everyone Talking About Him? And I think I saw this, I want to say, in the early days of Netflix streaming back in February of 2011. And, um, you know, what I... Uh, It was a very thorough telling of his life. And uh, you talk about that toward the end of his life, after John Lennon was shot and killed, he really got into uh, advocating for gun control. And, you know, I was actually thinking about that movie again the other day and thinking, you know, in light of like, uh, you know, March for Our Lives, you kind of wonder what he'd be doing now. Oh, I think if Harry was still with us, he would be out there on the front lines and as horrified as most of us are by these uh, mass shootings. And I think it it would have said, see, we need to do something. Um, I don't know. Uh, We were somewhere over the weekend and somebody was talking about how many tourists aren't coming to uh, Los Angeles now or coming to America now because rightly or wrongly, their perception is there's, you know, gunfights on, on, on every street in America and it's a very dangerous place. And, Correctly. That may be an exaggeration. I think clearly um, we are not smart when it comes to managing our guns and the violence that, that can come from them. Uh, and I think Harry would have been really on the, on the forefront of that. Um, you know, Harry worshiped the Beatles. Uh, Harry had a blood, sweat and tears connection. Um, he, he was friends with Bobby Columbia. They had met uh, in some of the music circles here in LA. And in fact, uh, Bobby was, one of many, there were probably 20 of them. Harry would let them think they were the only one, but they actually were 20 godfathers to mm-hmm. his son, Zach. And Bobby <laughs> was, uh, was one of them. And in fact, Harry uh, went up to San Francisco for some of the recording sessions for what became Blood, Sweat and Tears 4. And when I was uh, uh, allowed to rummage around uh, Harry's widow's house, uh, in a drawer, we found a tape that Harry had brought back with him of uh, one of the songs from Blood, Sweat and Tears for that had entirely different lyrics. The, the instrumentation was the same. The lyrics were very different. So uh, what I can say, Aaron, is that Harry was a Blood, Sweat and Tears fan. And probably today he would have been wondering what the hell happened to Blood, Sweat and Tears. <laughs> yeah, the thing about that movie is I was actually inspired to go check out some of his music after I saw that. Specifically uh, his song, you know, very autobiographical, 1941 and Nilsson Schmilson. Harry, uh, for, for your listeners who may not be aware, uh, we're up on Amazon Prime and iTunes now. You can go see who is Harry Nilsson and why is everybody talking about him. Um, not only for an interesting film and story, but some great music. I, I did a college lecture one time in 2011, about uh, 2010 actually. And they said, so what are you working on? And I said, well, I'm working on this film about Harry Nilsson. I don't know about any of the three of you, but um, I had never been in a room of 150 people before where not one of them had an idea what I was talking about. Yeah. Harry Nilsson just totally went over their heads, had no <laughs> idea. And I said, well, you know, he sang the, the theme song for this great film, Midnight Cowboy, everybody's talking and, mm-hmm. oh yeah. And I said, and then he had this big power ballad, uh, Without yeah. you, you can't live. If living, oh, you yeah. know what's really yeah, interesting Curry is that. that. Yeah, and I think was it like the I week said, he died was her version hit number one or something like yeah. that. Yeah, 
And then, you know, he did this goofy little song called Put the Lime in the Coconut. Yes. Oh, okay. yep. he did that. So I said to them, see, you know his music, you didn't know his name, but now our film can remedy that. And I think it will. And in the same way, I think we can remedy today those people that may not be as familiar with Blood, Sweat and Tears, that by mm -hmm. seeing this film, not only a great story, but uh, become acquainted with uh, some great music by a great band. Yeah. There was yeah, some I, I showed the Harry that. Nielsen movie to my daughter and, you know, she was really like she was moved to tears by the end of it. And then I produced the picture of me sitting with Harry. Oh, where? <laughs> At a Beatles convention. Yeah, it yeah. was in uh, 86. And he was literally sitting behind a handgun, you know, like, um, you know, stop handgun violence thing. Yeah. And my friend went, that's Harry Nielsen. So I just went over him and he was he was amazing. You know, he was he was great. A fascinating guy, complicated guy. Um, and that's what makes for for great, uh, great films. Absolutely. Yeah, you, you have most of the uh, living members of uh, Blood, Sweat and Tears in your film. You talk to Steve Katz and David Clayton Thomas and Jim Fielder and Fred Lipsius. And of course, Bobby Columbi. What the hell happened to Chuck Winfield? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, two of the members uh, had passed away. Lou Solo right. had passed away uh, in yep. 2005, uh, 2015, and uh, uh, Dick Halligan passed away last year. Right. So they were there. Uh, so uh, and Dick was ill when we were shooting interviews and was unable to do it. Uh, but we talked to um, Chuck Winfield and we talked to Jerry Hyman and neither of them felt they had enough to really offer. And, they, and Chuck in particular, Chuck is a Jehovah's Witness. And I think uh, very private about and, and not having to go out and talk about their life. They want to talk about their faith. And I think he sort of felt he didn't. I, I talked to Chuck several times and he actually shared some of his memorabilia with us that appears in the film. Uh, Jerry just uh, felt he had nothing to say, and that was that. I mean, we've talked to who have we talked to, Jack. We well, as an autograph collector, I've talked to Jim Fielder. Um, I've talked to Lou Soloff. I've talked to um, Steve Katz. I've talked to Fred Lipsius. Well, I've talked to Bobby Columbia, obviously. Um, and we've talked. We've had Fred Lipsius and Steve Katz on the show. And you, of course, saw Steve Katz at the, with the Blues Project recently. Yes, he was out. He was in Lancaster. Uh, uh, yeah, a couple weeks ago. And I wanted to, I wanted to go there. Well, Steve had a, had a said a funny thing to me. We did a, 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 a satellite radio tour uh, to support uh, the film. And in one of the breaks, and actually, I think in one of the interviews, he said, you know, for, for 50 years, I couldn't get arrested. Now I'm in the New Yorker. I'm in the New York Times. I'm, I'm, I'm at Variety and Rolling Stone, and on podcasts like this because people are now talking about blood, sweat, and tears, whereas for many years they weren't. Yeah, no, he he he's a great guy. We 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 lo we love him, and he's a big he's a big centerpiece of your movie. Very much so. You see his character arc go from one uh, 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 spot A to spot B. And you understand how he got there. And uh, that also, I think, adds to the emotional content of the film. Yeah, that's my, my thing is, did BST need to get rid of Al Cooper to be what they were? <laughs> mm. Well, you know, 
Scott, it's a, it's a, it's a critical question. Mm. I, I'm not sure I would phrase it, did they have to get rid of him? Yeah. I think uh, Bobby says it well in many interviews that um, they would have been happy for Al to stay as leader of the band and, and writing the songs and making the songs and being involved in the production of the songs. But Steve and Bobby and a number of them just felt that he wasn't a strong enough singer. Um, that with all that horn behind him, that he didn't sort of jump out at you. And they felt they needed uh, somebody that would uh, enable them to be heard on the radio and not like underground FM radio. And, and so when David came in, I think that really became the prototype for what they were looking for, somebody who could just stand up in front of that horn section and command the stage and be heard. So I suppose you could make the argument that that they wouldn't have had that success with Al as the lead singer mm -hmm. um, and that they needed someone like David. And I think that's borne out by the facts. Um, but I think it's also worthy of saying that, that, you know, Al really helped create this sound in this band. Absolutely. Yeah. It was it his vision fun. originally, sort of. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it kind Sorry, of sounds like what they would have liked to have had based on what I saw in the movie is maybe Al Cooper being sort of like what Robbie Robertson was to, in the band. You know, Robbie, in the course of his career, didn't, with the band anyway, didn't do very much in the way of singing. But I mean, he was writing most of the songs, doing most of the arrangements and, you know, later on was basically the de facto leader of the group. And then, you know, maybe David Clayton Thomas being like the Richard Manuel, Rick Danko role in the group, sort of, maybe. But definitely yeah, Al Cooper, uh, kind of like the Robbie. Yeah, there's some truth to that. And, I, and uh, I, it was not meant to be, obviously. Um, mm -hmm. I think Al was of a mind, if I'm not uh, the lead singer, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. out. Yeah. And, uh, and that's what happened. Um, but uh, again, I think uh, we were not uh, doing a film that's about the history of the band. or right. <laughs> It's really a moment in time. And that moment was the summer of 1970. And Al had been long gone by then. I mean, I think that, you know, <laughs> what you've done is as essential a documentary as any that has ever been, you know, uh, put together in certainly in modern times, if not ever. And you're covering something that is important to cover just historically. And that's the thing that people need to understand. You know, even if you know nothing about Blood, Sweat and Tears, folks, you need to see this movie just because you can draw parallels between what the events in this movie and what is happening now. And you wouldn't be that far off if you did. I don't think we could possibly top what you just said, Scott. So maybe that's a good place to, to end. But thank I, 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 I agree. I'm very proud of this film. I hope your listeners will go out and find it somewhere. Uh, we'll be in theaters uh, probably through uh, early to mid-June. Uh, we are now uh, looking at um, where we might end up uh, for a streaming platform. And I'm hoping it'll be up on one of those streamers later in the year. And the and the soundtrack is out. Thank you. Yes, um, all of the live blood, sweat, and tears tracks that we found um, on those uh, multi tracks um, were mixed, and they are out on a uh, 
live uh, CD uh, soundtrack coming out uh, Friday, April 21st on Omnivore Recordings. If you want to hear how great this band is, uh, buy the CD, crank up the sound. You will not be disappointed. Uh, also, um, in a film, you have dramatic uh, uh, portions of the film where Blood, Sweat and Tears is not singing or performing, but we need music to talk about the spy elements or the poignant or whimsical or dramatic moments. So I needed someone to write the original score. And uh, I suggested that Bobby Columbia do it. And he was, no, 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 I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And, and so I, I was very persistent. And finally, he agreed to do it. And then he spent another two weeks trying to get out of it. <laughs> uh, but then he, he uh, brought in uh, David Mann, who's a very talented New York musician. And together, they composed this original soundtrack, which is just terrific. It, it, was, it, it just perfectly matched every color and texture and tone that we needed for the film. And we, Bobby brought in the current Blood, Sweat and Tears to record the original soundtrack. And, and so it's in the style of this unique sound. And so it's just perfect for that. That is coming out on Friday, the, April 21st, uh, digital only. So okay. uh, one way or another, you can hear all the music in this film. Yeah, we, we're, we're going to rush the uh, podcast and hopefully yeah. have it out, not next week, but probably two weeks. Well, okay. no, I, we could have it out next week. I have no problem with that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate, well, I, I know I we just dropped uh, Skip Taylor uh, volume one. Oh, no, so. he can wait. We've already done three with him. So. Okay. <laughs> no, no, we got to do, do John's. John is one of the great documentarians of our time. Oh, absolutely. And we'll, we'll, be, we'll be in touch with Kim when this drops. Please do. I, I thank you for the enthusiasm, all the kind words. Very much appreciated. Uh, and uh, and uh, all the smart questions. And where can people find this again? Uh, uh, now you can uh, look us up at bstdoc.com. Lots of uh, information about the, the film, lots of the uh, great uh, press that we've been receiving. And if you click on watch, you'll be able to find every theater across the country that is uh, showing the film. And we'll also have more of this on our Facebook page as well. Yep. Terrific. All right. I just Thank want you, to outro. Oh, wait, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. No, thank no. You, John. It's, thank it's you. It's fine. And I just wanted to say the great John Scheinfeld, ladies and gentlemen, go watch everything he's ever done <laughs> because you won't be disappointed. <laughs> I agree completely. <laughs> thank you, John. Thank you, guys. Thank you, John. Thank you. <laughs> really appreciate it. Bye. All right. Well, Bye. Guys, thank you so much.
If it's peace you find in dying and if dying time is near, bundle up my coffin, cause it's cold way down there. I hear that it's cold way down there, yeah. Crazy cold way down there. And when I die and when I'm gone, there'll be one child born in this world to carry on, to carry on.
And that's our show. Keep the Dream Flowing, a Woodstock 1969 podcast was produced and edited by Scott Parker. Your hosts were Jack Lekensky, Johnny Hudson, Aaron Shear, Jim Shelley, and Scott Parker. Keep the Dream Flowing, a Woodstock 1969 podcast is not associated in any way with Woodstock Ventures or any of its entities. Come and check us out on our Facebook page. The group is called Keep the Dream Flowing where we keep you updated on various things that we're doing and give you a heads up when there's a new episode coming. So check that out. On behalf of all of us here at Keep the Dream Flowing, this is Scott Parker saying thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.